that's one of the great, largely forgotten stories of this of this era is that in Moscow, Khrushchev accepted the idea to do a joint mission. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Okay, all flight controllers, gonna go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. In a world divided by the ideological struggles of the Cold War, the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement, more than one-fifth of the people on the planet paused to watch the live transmission of the Apollo 11 mission. To watch as humanity took a giant leap forward exactly 50 years ago today. Now before we start, a special thanks to our select band of supporters who are helping us financially for the price of a cup of coffee a month to cover our increasing costs and keep us on the air. They are the proud owners of a Cold War Conversations coaster. This year's a must-have household accessory. Head over to patreon.com slash coldwarpod for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash coldwarpod. You can also help us by leaving reviews on iTunes or where you found this podcast. It really helps us get new guests on the show. Today we speak with Robert Stone, an Oscar and Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, and Alan Andre, co-authors of the book Chasing the Moon, companion book to the landmark documentary series, which will be showing on BBC TV PBS and other channels around the world. We welcome Robert Stone and Alan Andre to Cold War Conversations. What are the origins of the U.S. space program? Uh, well, I mean, the, the origins of the American space program essentially came out of the Cold War um, with the uh, c- concern about nuclear proliferation. Um, in fact, Eisenhower's, um, President Eisenhower's interest in having orbiting a satellite in 1955, it was announced as being part of the International Geophysical Year as a scientific uh, um, exploration of the, of the uh, environment in the outer space. But in fact, his real concerns were about surveillance. Um, and establishing overflight so that the uh, Soviet missile program could be monitored. Um, and that was essentially, that became the reason why Eisenhower was reluctant to be the first nation to orbit a satellite um, because they were, he was afraid that it would cause an international incident uh, because overflight going in orbit over a country and looking down on them um, was a violation of airspace. Right, right. And and the origins of this technology date back to World War Two and the the V two missile attacks on on London. Is that correct? It was Werner von Braun's um, project, working as Hitler's um, um, munitions um, genius, um, essentially recruited by the German army 
1932 that essentially led to the uh, creation of the what we know as the ballistic missile, which was the V-2, which went into operation in late 1944. Yeah. So, what, I mean, what happened was von Braun came to the United States and started building intercontinental ballistic missiles for the U.S. Army. The Soviets um, got a certain number of lower level German rocket engineers to come back to the Soviet Union, and they were developing their own ICBM, also based on the V-2. Um, but what happened was the the the, the uh, Soviets were calculating the size of the warhead that they were going to have to that was that this rocket was going to have to carry, and they calculated we have to lift about six tons. Um, the Americans calculated we have to lift about three tons. Um, because the Americans were better at miniaturization on their on their uh, on their warhead designs, and um, so the Soviets ended up with this massive rocket that was way bigger than the Americans had developed, and it uh, it was so expensive and so complex that the, it wasn't really useful as a weapon, but um, it allowed them to launch things into orbit uh, before the United States, and so they had the, they had this massive rocket that they ended up using for Sputnik, and then. Seeing the uh, the worldwide reaction to that, which came as a bit of a shock to them, they proceeded with these um, space spectaculars, one after another. Um, that uh, were the the United States just was not able to to match in those early years. So Eisenhower, with his sort of like, di- didn't want to launch a satellite because of the potential of an international incident. The, the Soviets took. Uh, Obviously, didn't take a similar view, but I'm I'm surprised to hear that they were surprised by the international reaction to that. Did they think there would be criticism of them launching a a satellite? Then, well, they didn't think that the, the American public was going to go, and the American <laughs> political leadership were going to go into a complete panic, and it was going to make headlines all over the world. That was kind of a surprise to them. Yeah, it was a, it was a scientific satellite as part of the International Geophysical Year. It was certainly a great achievement, but they didn't expect that uh, it was just going to cause this complete kind of psychic breakdown in the West. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, that, that uh, oh my God, the Soviets are the leading technological society and we're, we're, we've fallen behind. So that was, a, that was a surprise. And Khrushchev was, was, um, was uh, uh, pleasantly surprised, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't something he had predicted. He, he wasn't actually that interested in the whole project until he saw the, the panic in the West. Then he said, oh, okay, this is interesting. Let's do some more of this. <laughs> a month later, they launch a dog, and you know, and two years later, they're three years later, they're uh, launching the first man into space. So, yeah, and so uh, Yuri Gagarin is is this first man in space, and again, he takes this you know this massive publicity tour around the world, and again, that must have been a shock because it, again, the Americans appear to be on the back foot. Right. And in in fact, President Kennedy, up until Gagarin's flight, he really hadn't even thought about uh, space exploration, human space exploration that much. Um, I mean, during the the campaign with Nixon, he was emphasizing the uh, missile gap, quote unquote, between the United States and the Soviet Union, blaming the Republicans for being sort of asleep at the wheel while the Russians got the bigger heavy lifting rockets, which were actually a result of you know many years earlier. Um and that but by the time he becomes president, he's really not concerned the first couple of months about space exploration that much at all. In fact, 
the head, appointing the head of NASA, James Webb was one of the last cabinet appointments he made. Right. But then Garen goes up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I think I read somewhere he was more interested in some desalination project than the space program. Yeah, yeah he, he, he thought that that the key technological that. thing, yeah, was that. So he said the, the key, the key, the most important thing advanced technologically that human beings could do at that particular point in history was desalination. But but then he comes around to the American space program becoming a great uh, PR tool. Well, the one thing we have to put in there is one week after Gagarin is the day of pigs invasion, or maybe it's even less. It maybe it's five days after Gagarin goes up. He, he does the ill-fated uh, CIA-backed invasion of uh, Cuba, uh, which goes badly. And so he's already a new president in his first hundred days. He's had two big setbacks. So um, he's looking for something to uh, bolster his uh, his image, but also to show a command that uh, he's in charge. So. Yeah. So he's ca- he's casting about for you know how how can we beat the Russians? And um, his advisors is saying. Well, this, we really can't beat the Russians. They've, they're way ahead of us with rocket development, as I said earlier. Um, they're going to continue to do these space spectaculars for quite some time. Um, it's going to take a, a while to catch up. And it was Werner von Braun, who dreamed since he was a kid of sending rockets to the moon, who, who said, well, let's just move the goalposts. Let's just, let's just uh, set an entirely new objective beyond orbiting the earth let's let's go to the moon because if we go to the moon the russians don't have a rocket that'll get to the moon and we don't have a rocket till we get to the moon so it'll sort of press a reset on the whole race and uh Braun was convinced that he had the ability to build a rocket that would go to the moon um and the russians probably didn't uh and uh he was right <laughs> as it right. turned out but yeah, that, that was that was when Kennedy said, "Oh well, okay, well let's go to the moon." But that was that was quite a big, well, a massive gamble. And I and I, I think I read in the in the book that JFK sees this as a, also an opportunity to show the superiority of the capitalist world over Soviet technology. Sure, that was, yeah. I mean that was ultimately the whole premise of the of the entire thing for them and for the Russians too, which was to say, you know. Our society is the, the the leading the cutting edge of the future. We're the we're the wave of the future. We're sending humanity to the stars. Come with us, um, you know, to the to the 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 developing world, which was just coming out of colonial colonialism, and 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 uh, was deciding which path they would take. Would they go to the liberal democratic West or the communist East? And um, so the space program was a way of demonstrating that uh, the you know the the best of what the Soviet Soviet society could achieve and and the best of what American society could achieve and it was a it was kind of a war of visual imagery really yeah. a war it was a it was a propaganda war yeah yeah and he makes that iconic speech where you know we choose to I can't remember the exact words but you know reach for the moon or go for the moon. Not because it is easy, but it, because it is hard. Yes. Right. I was hoping somebody would remember what the <laughs> what the rest of the line was. I was going to say you can cut in the audio there. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. 
not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. And I think I think an interesting side story is is the story of Ed Dwight, which um, he's this black U.S. Air Force pilot who is introduced into the astronaut school. And well, was this an attempt at showing equality or just a PR stunt? Well, it's a, it has an interesting origin. We go back to Edward R. Murrow, who was the CBS journalist for years who covered the Blitz and uh, the McCarthy took on Joe McCarthy in the 1950s. He left CBS in 1961 to become Kennedy's head of the U.S. Information Agency, which was a you know the, a government agency promoting the image of the United States around the world. Um, and he was the one who suggested that because of the Situate the American perception in the emerging third world, the African colonial countries, the former colonial countries, Latin America and Asia. And because of the uh, stories coming out of the American South about the civil rights movement, that if the United States recruited a black astronaut, they could use that image around the world to sort of counter the negative uh, images coming out of the American South. Um, and in fact, Morrow at one point says, for all purposes, that he would be the most important astronaut because he would be uh, a person of color, which we, which we have to acknowledge most of the world is. Um, it's kind of an interesting little memo that he sends off. Uh, and nothing happens for a while, but then they start to, in that by 1962, the, uh, Air Force starts going through files and they find um, Ed Dwight, who has an engineering degree and ha- does have time as a, 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 as a pilot, um, airtime. And then so they ask him whether he would like to uh, be recruited to go to, the, to Edwards Air Force Base and to uh, um, train as a test pilot and then uh, go through their astronauts. Um, program. He goes through. He goes through the uh, test pilot school, and he goes through the astronaut school, and he applies to be uh, an astronaut for the what would be the third group in 1963. But he is not chosen. But the interesting thing is that at that time, by even before the the uh, decision was made for who would be which, who would be the astronauts for the third group in '63. He was already on the cover of a number of magazines. There were uh, images of him. He even becomes part of a comedy routine by Dick Gregory, the black comedian. I mean, it's it's filled. It's the news is out there in the press while he is even being trained. So, but it's a, it's a, it's also a, it's a it's a reflection of the difference in perspective that NASA had on what they were doing and what the Kennedy administration had on what they were doing. Uh, you know, the Kennedy administration's uh, purpose with the space race is exactly what we've been talking about, is projecting uh, American technological prowess and American prestige uh, 
uh, around the world, whereas NASA saw it as purely in, in sort of engineering terms, like, well, okay, we're going to send men to the moon and we're going to go there. They never even considered like taking cameras into space or television cameras or, you know, it was just a mission to accomplish this goal. They're, they're a bunch of engineers. So they saw no benefit in having a black astronaut. There was no, there was no, it, it didn't factor into their thinking at all. In fact, they were resentful of it. Whereas um, the people who are looking at, 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 at this from a, a more PR perspective and seeing the sort of big, bigger picture saw the benefit of uh, integrating the astronaut corps early on. Yeah. So do you think he was turned down because they just felt some people felt he was getting too much publicity? And yeah, there was a lot of resentment. There's a lot of resentment that, you know, that he was somehow being treated special because of his race. I think one of the things that I was really surprised to read that I had no knowledge about was that JFK tried to reach out to Khrushchev for a joint lunar mission. Yeah, that's one of the great, yeah, that's one of the great, um, largely forgotten stories, uh, of this, of this era is that, um, Kennedy was appalled at the spiraling costs of the, of the program almost from day one, uh, and the duplication of effort. And within, within six weeks of giving his, uh, uh, first speech announcing that we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, he goes and meets with Khrushchev in Vienna, his one and only meeting with Khrushchev. And proposes, you know, doing a joint mission. And Khrushchev thinks about it, but turns him down because he's afraid that uh, uh, doing a joint mission with the Americans will um, reveal to the, the American military that they only have a few ICBMs. They've only got a few missiles. They're, 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 they're the, the whole missile gap was kind of a bluff, and um, that the, the Americans would get too much of an inside uh, knowledge of, of their technological. Um, position with rockets. Um, but Kennedy, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy and Khrushchev were both very interested in winding down the tensions of the Cold War and finding areas of cooperation. And uh, Kennedy proposed this again in a big speech at the United Nations in September 1963. And uh, apparently, uh, according to Khrushchev's son, in um, uh, late October, early November, 1963 through back channels to the American embassy uh, in Moscow, Khrushchev um, accepted the idea to do a joint mission. Wow. And of course, Kennedy's killed on November 22nd and Khrushchev was overthrown uh, in October 64. And um, the the whole idea just died. But uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating what if. I mean, the whole history of uh, the Cold War would have, I think, been thoroughly transformed if they'd uh, if they'd pulled this off yeah somebody's got to write an alternative history there yeah but it was widely publicized i mean there was a big spread in life magazine about how they do it with you know diagrams and yeah it was quite, it was a big deal at the time but it's been forgotten because it never came to pass fascinating when when kennedy makes that call they have to start the apollo program from scratch i mean they've got some ideas but they they don't have the technology Correct. They didn't have the technology. The interesting thing was they actually had a plan that was being written in 1960 about the Apollo program, but it was all speculative on paper. It, they didn't really know. They didn't know how it would be done, but they were just saying is they were thinking about this in the background. It was sort of a fantasy 
well, what if we were, you know, became this big agency, but nothing, I don't think they ever thought it was going to happen within, you know, a couple of decades. And then Kennedy makes the call and they can pull the paper out and say, well, wait a minute, what can we do here? So, um, but even Robert Gilruth, who was the head of manned space flight um, at the time of Kennedy's um, uh, May 25th, 61 uh, speech, said he was kind of shocked when Kennedy chose to do that because he said, I don't even know how we're going to do it. So. Apollo 1 is the... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, supposed to be the the first mission, but that's the first indication that things are being rushed too quickly and things aren't being tested properly. Yeah, well, the Apollo 1 mission was scheduled to launch in February of 1967. And between the last Mercury flight in um, 1963, there was the Gemini program, which was sort of a continuing story of, of gradual progress as each mission built on the others and they learned to do things like spacewalks, rendezvous in docking, um, uh, a lot of observation, a lot of maneuvering. Um, and that's, and that's what they built upon to get to the begin the Apollo program. And the Apollo program was beginning within what, two, three months of the last Gemini flight in November of 66. And that's, as you say, it, it, it that's when the rush, uh, the pro- the problems with the uh, the rush of uh, getting the Apollo program going came to fruition with the uh, the accident in January of '67, the fire, fatal fire. Yeah, yeah, and also at that time, there's a uh, space treaty signed as well. Correct. It was actually the same day as the uh, the Apollo One fire. In fact, the space treaty, the Outer Space Space Treaty, was signed an hour before the uh, the fire in the White House. And it was actually it was jointly signed, I think, in the White House and in um, Moscow and in was it London? I can't remember. Somewhere in Europe, the three three different locations they okay. signed it that day. And what did that cover? That treaty? It essentially, it it, um, it was to, for the first and foremost thing was to reduce any arms in space. No nuclear, no orbiting nuclear warheads. No uh, combat spacecraft um but also it ruled out sovereignty of, of claiming the moon as the uh, the sovereign property of another nation that kind of thing and it's essentially it's the basis of almost all space law since then and and so the americans are working on the 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 apollo program what are, what are the soviets doing at this point 
Well, that the Soviet, the, the leader of the Soviet space program, um, Korolev, who was sort of the von Braun of, um, of, of Russia, died in 1966. And that was a huge setback for them. Though they had, Korolev had only been really given the full go-ahead with fu- full funding for a moon mission in 1964, late 1964, after um, Khrushchev was overthrown and replaced by Brezhnev. So they hadn't been at it very long. And they built this rocket that was uh, their version of the Saturn V rocket. It was about the same size. The Some of the problems they had was that they, they did not have... Um, these large rocket engines that von Braun had developed and used in the Saturn V. So whereas the Saturn V uh, had five rocket engines at the at its base in its first stage, the uh, N1 rocket, the Russian rocket, had 30 engines. So it was incredibly complex that all of those engines had to fire simultaneously and run perfectly. Um, so it was a it was a it was a complex thing and then they they also basically mimicked exactly what the the method that the Americans were going to do with a with a lunar module and that would have two parts one would stay on the moon and one would, would um go off and return to the mothership uh, they were going to have just one cosmonaut but they also had problems with the weight they weren't able to get the weight down uh of the lunar module uh enough so they were just plagued with with problems and uh um about 2 weeks before the launch of Apollo 11, the, the N1 blew up spectacularly on the launch pad, and that was really their last chance to uh, to beat the Americans. But there's a there's a fascinating story that happens. Uh, their their hail mary pass uh, to beat America, which has been uh, largely forgotten, that we have uh, both in both the book and the film that I can tell you about. We love a unknown story on Cold War conversations. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So one of the most amazing things that I, I really had completely forgotten and did not know about when I was going into this project, but that emerged from watching just hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of raw um, original uh, live television broadcasts was that um, a day before the launch of Apollo 11, the Soviet Union in a last-ditch effort to beat the Americans, launched a robotic spacecraft called Luna 15 towards the moon. And this was announced all over the world, and everybody knew what they were going to do. And their the, the plan was they were going to fly to the moon, land on the surface of the moon, scoop up with their robots, scoop up some lunar soil, and return to the Earth before Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins could get back with the lunar soil that they had gathered uh, by actually landing humans on the moon. And uh, this was part of the drama that we all witnessed. All Anybody who was watching television at that time was, what the hell is Luna 15 doing? Where is it? There were concerns that it might run into. There might be some sort of a collision, how infinitesimal that might, the chances of that. And there were there was conversations back and forth on the hotline to Moscow about this, about what their trajectory was. And uh, all the way to the moon, and during the landing on the moon, there was speculation about what the Luna 15 was doing. About an hour after Armstrong and Aldrin touched down on the moon, it was announced in the world media, all over the world, that Luna 15 had passed over the lunar module and had landed safely 200 miles away and was busy scooping up soil. And this was really a big part of what 
had us all riveted. I remember I was alive. I was 10 years old, but I completely forgotten that. Armstrong and Aldrin do their business on the moon, broadcast all over the world. Uh, they leave, fly up, uh, join up back up with the lunar module, and suddenly uh, it is announced, actually it was Jodwell Bank in Britain that was monitoring the Luna 15. They announced to the world that, uh, in fact, they've looked at their uh, telemetry and calculations from the Soviet craft, and it had, in fact, it had crashed. It had crash-landed 300 miles an hour into the, into the, surface, of the surface of the moon, and that the early report that it had landed safely was erroneous. So, because it didn't happen, it's been lost to history. But it was a it was a major component of the of the hour by hour drama that had us all riveted during Apollo eleven. Wow, yeah, I mean, I I was too young really to comprehend what was happening. Um, I vaguely remember being woken up and and watching it on on TV. But that the I mean, the the Soviets launched a number of lunar uh, automated uh, craft, didn't they, to uh, yeah. survey the moon? Well, they were quite successful. The Luna 16, actually, which is the follow-on one, did succeed in, in, in doing exactly what Luna 15 failed to do. So they were quite successful and with their robotic uh, spacecraft, but um, that particular one failed. I mean, it was just an interesting sort of man versus machine yeah. uh, drama that got played out. Yeah, but, that's a, um, that's a that's a great story. Thank thank you for yeah. for sharing that. I think the 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 other one or or one of the the many <laughs> fascinating stories I'm 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 finding here is about Poppy Northcott, which uh-huh. some people may be familiar uh, with her. But if you can just explain a little bit about her story. Well, Poppy Northcott was a um, graduate from college, uh, University of Texas. Her first job was um, working um, as a computer computerist is the name of the um, job position, um, and it was working in Houston at the Manned Spacecraft Center. Um, but she quickly found out that she was um, overqualified for um, what she was doing, and so they moved her up, and she started working as a computer programmer on return to earth trajectory for the Apollo program. And she was 25 years old and was brought in um, to work in mission control during the Apollo 8 mission. And in fact, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about the uh, whole of mission control is the average age was under 30 of all of the, flight con- uh, the, uh, the flight controllers. But she was 25. She was the first woman to work there, and she became a media sensation for about 15 minutes, one of those Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame things where <laughs> she was appearing on um, television uh, newscasts. And um, we tracked her down and talked to her and got her to tell her story. I mean, one of the interesting stories about this is that she was actually used in a trade advertisement because she was um, she was employed by TRW, an aerospace firm, which then she was working for NASA as a contractor, contracted employee for TRW. And she was the first employee of TRW to be featured in trade advertising in magazines. Essentially, they were using her as a symbol of uh, their, uh, you know, their aerospace team. Um, and she found out 
she essentially concluded that she couldn't be fired. She was an image of the of the country of company, so that she could speak out on things that she believed in, which were equal pay for women. Brilliant, brilliant. And and so yeah, she, she became quite radicalized, to, but you know, working in this all male world. Of, you know, I mean, the mass emission control is probably the sort of quintessential macho environment, you know, you can imagine. And uh, she became quite radicalized as a feminist in that in that uh, environment and in that, that time period when this was just sort of this issue was really bubbling up to the fore. And yeah. she ended up becoming, founding the, uh, the Houston chapter of the National Organization for Women and ended up becoming a national board member for, for the organization. Um, uh, called now, which is very well known here in the United States, um, and it, you know became a, a quite a you know she was written up in Life magazine and became quite a well known figure in the women's movement. Yeah, no, that's a that that's a great story. And and as you say, she was working on Apollo Eight, which was the the first mission to actually uh, fly around the moon, wasn't it? Yes, she worked on Apollo 8, Apollo 11, Apollo 13. All the, I mean, all, she worked right the way through the Apollo program. Yeah, and a, Apollo 8 is the one that's famous for that photo. Um, is it the Earthrise photo? Earthrise, yes, which was totally unplanned. I mean, one of the, you know, it's become sort of a cliche, but it's very true and interesting that, uh, you know, NASA's entire focus in the, the space program was looking out, going to the moon. They planned to go to Mars, send robotic craft out to the outer planets. It was all this sort of looking out into space and uh, this sort of outward adventure that humanity would eventually go on into the stars. And uh, But the most, the most the singular, most uh, impressive image um, that resonated the most here on Earth was it was this this view back of the Earth um, in the background of the foreground of this lifeless world, um, and it, it sparked uh, 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 the, the environmental movement. Really um, took took that image as, as as its symbol and motivated a lot of people to really start to think very differently about the Earth, the sort of island Earth, the space spaceship Earth, as it were, and. Um, yeah, it's one of the most iconic images of the 20th century. I think it's interesting that um, anthropologist Margaret Mead said right after the photograph appeared that she thought that that one image justified the entire expense of the space program. And it's interesting. I don't think it would have resonated if had it been taken by a robot. I think the fact that it was taken right. by a human being is what gives that image its power. Yeah, it, it definitely illustrates the fragility of earth in mm-hmm. you know in in well just just as a you know our, our environment so uh so just m- moving on to apollo 11 people are probably familiar with some of the audio from the 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 missions and the crackle and the conversation backwards and forwards between uh mission control and the astronauts but i, I just do find that fascinating the the speed they're trying to make these calculations and when they're coming on to the moon surface they get that computer error okay all flight controllers go no go for landing retro go Fido. go guidance go control go telecom go gnc go econ go. Go. surgeon go capcom we're go for landing eagle houston you're go for landing over i do anything go for landing three thousand feet Top alarm. 
It's easy to look back at this and think, because it succeeded so marvelously, to think that uh, that was sort of the inevitable outcome. But it was an incredibly risky mission. And the prospects of it going wrong, like if you can imagine had Apollo 11 crashed or had they not been able to get off the surface of the moon, I mean, nobody would ever look at the moon the same way again. So it was incredibly risky, not only just for the astronauts, but for the United States to have embarked on this at all. Um, you know, it's a high risk, uh, high reward. Um, yeah. But the risk were the, the the risks were very very real, and um, they they came very close to running out of gas, uh, running out of fuel, and landing uh, the land. The original landing site turned out to be a boulder field, and they had to fly around for an extra thirty seconds, which was uh, you know uh, everything was was it was dialed in to happened like clockwork, so that was unexpected. And they had 17 seconds of fuel left when Armstrong finally touched down on the surface. Um, so it was, a, it was a very risky thing. Nobody had ever done it. Nobody had ever flown this machine before uh, uh, down to and landed on the lunar surface. So it was, uh, it was all completely new, um, largely untested, untried uh, equipment in that environment. Um, but he pulled it off. Uh, Armstrong, Armstrong was a remarkable was a remarkable person. <laughs> uh, he was he was the guy you wanted with you in in that kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, no, very very fine fine margins. And I think the the lunar module was being flown by computer for the bulk of the time as well, which was a a first in itself. Well, it wasn't being flown by computer, but they did they had they had an onboard computer that was was tracking the, the ground and also um, was also tracking the command module in the event that they needed to abort and get back. And it was that overload of tracking both the landing site and the, and the command module simultaneously that caused the computer to get overloaded and, and, and uh, produce these, um, these errors, which caused a bit of a panic for a while until they, you know, for momentarily until they realized that, um, um, you know, they could just reset it and, and keep going. But it was, you know, Armstrong manually landed the, the lunar module yeah yeah now i i've sort of read you know where press releases are are pre-built in case something happens were, were there pre-written press announcements that were that were ready should the worst happen and you know they get left on the moon or crash into the moon that's a good question because i've i've heard that nasa public affairs had a file of what to do, but as far as I know, that's never been seen. What has been seen is the speech that was written by William Sapphire in the White House for Nixon to give and the procedures to follow in case there was a, what was known as in case of a moon disaster was the 
the memo. And that has that surfaced a few years after. In fact, I think it came out in the 1980s. It was discovered, um, and it's widely seen on the internet now. But that that was only written at the uh, prompting of Frank Borman, the astronaut Frank Borman, who was working in the White House as the NASA liaison. And he said to uh, William Safar, well, you've got to think about uh, procedures in case things don't completely work out. And Safar goes, oh, what, 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 are, what are you alluding to? You've got to have something ready for the widows. But then, then he wrote, the, the, wrote this memo, which was essentially folded up and kept in H.R. Haldeman, the, uh, the White House chief of staff's um, pocket during the Apollo 11 mission and was never taken out. Yeah, it said things like, uh, you know, they came in peace and they will rest in peace. And, you know, this, it's, it's quite chilling to read, actually. The yeah. other thing we discovered is the uh, Newsweek and um, the Daily News and most likely some other major publications were all ready to go um, with a, with a, uh, a disaster headline. The, 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 because they knew, that they knew in the event of a, of a mishap, they'd have to get their papers out very quickly. Um, so the Daily News had a marooned headline, all typefaced and ready to go. Newsweek had a, a similar um, a similar cover for their magazine, all ready to go. Um, but uh, you know, fortunately, they weren't needed. But the press was was fully prepared for for some sort of a disaster. They you know they had to be. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and um, I was interested also to to read that there was some discussion about what flag to have on the moon. It was an act of Congress to put them to put up an American flag. Actually, um, yeah, uh, there was a, there was a discussion about whether it should be a UN flag, whether it should be American flag, um, and uh, Nixon was, wanted wanted them to sing this uh, play the Star Spangled Banner while they were standing on the moon. Saluting the flag, which uh, Frank Borman put a next to that one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of controversy about what they should do and whether this should be a humans on the moon or Americans on the moon. They did a bit of both. Right, and and how how was the moon landing viewed in other countries, like particularly in in Eastern Europe, where you know the governments there would have seen it as a capitalist success and would want to play it down but how, how did the the general populations and and even the governments of um you know eastern europe and the the communist countries view the landing well it's interesting the yugoslavia uh tito's yugoslavia did show the apollo 11 uh, mission live on television it was the first time um the yugoslavians had seen the broadcast coming from the, uh, from the United States, and there were apparently, from what the reports say, is that the country came to a standstill. Um, no one was working; people were just glued to their television sets. In fact, there's even a Yugoslavian film that was made not long ago about when they were when, when they were walking on the moon, which was about life in Yugoslavia at on that particular uh, during that particular week in. Poland, it was interesting. We heard recently from a woman who was a child, American child, visiting Poland that summer. Um, and she had a story that secretly the Poles took her family uh, aside and had parties for them. 
with special drinks, which were, I guess, bootleg Coca-Cola cans. Uh, but that they were delighted that the Americans had achieved the moon landing, but they couldn't show it overtly in public. But they were set behind closed doors. They were all cheering. So, so and and what about the the Soviet Union? Did they did did Nixon get a message of congratulations from them or or not? Well, it wasn't. Oh, Robert. Yeah, go, go ahead with the Pravda. <laughs> yeah, it it wasn't shown in 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 Russia. It wasn't shown in China. Um, Pravda had uh, an announcement that they'd landed on the moon uh, on the bottom of page six. <laughs> 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 yeah, so there's a little sour grapes there for sure. Yeah, yeah. so I guess there wasn't a message of congratulations <laughs> there on that basis. Um. And, and how do you think the the moon landing affected you know the the world generally? Because it, it you know it it is such an an iconic event. But what what did it change well, many things? Well, if I could tell one story about the the uh, um, television coverage around the world that did change is one country where it was not seen was South Africa. And the reason for that was South African country did not have a television network at that time because the uh, government believed that television would pollute the uh, general uh, public. Um, They were afraid of things like pro-communist people speaking on the air or uh, people talking about race mixing. There was television was seen as this, as the devil's invention. And so the South, the rich were some rich South Africans from Cape Town actually chartered a flight to go to the, to England to see the actual live broadcast at the hotel Dorchester. <laughs> so it was like a moon. It was their, their own moon mission to, to England, but they can't, they, the films of the broadcast were shown at the, uh, uh, Cape Town Observatory in jo- and in Jonestown, I think the next week, and there were segregated audiences were allowed in to see the actual um, broadcast a week later. And this uh, this entire experience, they felt like they were the only ones in the world who didn't see it, eventually caused the South African nation to join the rest of the televised world. And so they had their first... Uh, the first network was established in uh, 1976, but the, the Apollo 11 incident was one of the major reasons why South Africa finally did get television. Right, right. That's a good story. And uh, I'm always fascinated by, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the lunar or the Apollo program sort of just sort of, or the lunar landings fade away. I mean, there's that, there's that line in, Apollo, the film Apollo 13, where, you know, they're going to do the live TV link and no one's actually watching it because it's, it's old news. It's just seen as ordinary. Well, that's the very unique thing about Apollo 11 is that it, it was, it was the first time that we'd done this. It was the first time that human beings had gone and landed on an alien world. And that was revelatory. The fact that it was broadcast around the world live, the, the, the global um, satellite link-up to allow a global broadcast had only come online a couple of weeks before Apollo 11. 
And so this was just, it was a revelatory moment. The entire world had been living in anticipation of this happening for the better part of a decade. And um, there was a sense of unity around the world. We all felt our common humanity um, and a sense that we had somehow collectively done this together. It's the one and only time, perhaps in all of human history, that the entire world had been felt uh, a sense of brotherhood and unity. Um, and it's not something that can be easily repeated. Uh, going to the moon again is not going to be like the first time or the third time or the fourth time or the second. You know, it's the, the first time you do something, the first time you climb Mount Everest is, a, is an achievement. The second time you climb Mount Everest um, is just the second time. So uh, I think even going to Mars would not resonate the same way that first landing on the moon would for a couple of reasons. First, the Mars doesn't hang in the night sky and give us the sense of awe and wonder the way the moon does. And, and secondly, you know, it's still, even, even landing on Mars, as spectacular as that would be, um, it wouldn't be the first time that humans have set foot on another world. So I think this was a unique moment in history that uh, um, never happened before and will never happen quite the same way again. In, in the research that you, that you did, I mean, we've covered some sort of amazing stories that you found, but it is, are there any others that you've just thought, wow, I never knew that, or that is just really, really interesting? If I had to take one answer from each of you. <laughs> Go ahead, Al. Oh, God, there's so many. I'm trying, to figure, I'm trying to figure out which ones to do. Well, the one thing that I'm sort of amazed by is I, you may have heard of Project A119, which was the Air Force's plan to explode a nuclear weapon on the moon. But, and that came out, that was only came out in public around the year 2000. But I thought, what I found was interesting is that plan goes back to the weekend of Sputnik. And when Sputnik went up, there was a conference in Barcelona, Spain. Um, and there was a paper delivered the day after Sputnik was announced, which was a scientific uh, proposal to explode nuclear weapons on the moon as a form of a Cold War competition. The, uh, the author of the paper said it was putting the hand of man on nature and suggested that the Soviet Union and the United States could engage in a competition to see who could make the bigger crater and that they could name them after presidents and premiers. And I did, that, was, that one was a bizarre one to me and that was totally lost as far as I could find in history. And that is what led to the plan of the A A119, which was the Air Force's crazy proposal to uh, explode nuclear weapons on the moon the following year. So. Wow. So thanks, thanks for sharing that one, Alan. And uh, Robert? <laughs> well, there's so many surprises along the way. I think, I, think, I think one of the biggest surprises for us is in a story that's been picked over so many times in the, in the last 50 years, how many new things we were able to find. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think the, uh, our whole perception or misperception of what was happening in the Soviet Union is one of the most fascinating things to me. 
Um, the fact that after Sputnik, the American public was just in a panic and digging fallout shelters and imagining that thousands of Soviet rockets were going to rain ruin on the United States at any moment. Well, it turned out the Soviet Union only had like three rockets. The whole thing was a bluff. Um, and then when we then when uh, uh, we started the the race to the moon, and the American public was riveted to this drama of uh, astronauts going into space, and the cosmonauts were going into space, and one mission after another, and you know who was going to get to the moon first? Well, it turned out that the Russians had no plans to go to the moon at all. They were just they were just pulling off. Uh, um, space spectaculars for propaganda value. There was no, there was no coordinated thought about. Oh, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, one mission's gonna build upon another to build this level of skills and technological development, which will get us to the moon. Which is what the Americans were doing. The Russians were like, oh, let's send a woman into space. Oh, let's let's we've got this little capsule. Let's send three people into space, and we'll do it because we'll just put the, we'll stuff them in the in the space capsule without spacesuits, that'll save space. <laughs> Horribly dangerous, but we'll do that because that'll be cool. That'll get headlines, you know. Um, but there wasn't any. There was no rhyme or reason why they were doing any of this. It was or let's 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 do a spacewalk. Um, um, and we didn't know that. We thought we thought they were you know on, on this forward march and we're going to beat us to the moon, which was why the American public. Uh, uh, and, and, and congressional leaders were so supportive and, and allocating funds for this. But um, it turned out that they really, there was no plan to go to the moon until really late 64, early 65, at which point we were so far ahead. The Russians just were scrambling um, and really never had a hope in hell of beating the United States. Um, but we didn't, we didn't, none of that was revealed in the details of this, what the Soviet lunar program was actually doing wasn't even revealed until um, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. And that information was came out and we saw what, you know, we saw what their plans were and how desperately behind they were. Yeah. But that was a real surprise. No, that that's, that's, that's really interesting and appreciate you sharing that. Now, um, with my guests, I sometimes ask a last couple of questions which aren't necessarily related to um, the subjects we've been discussing. Um, what I like to ask is if you had unlimited budget for a, a drama film based in the Cold War, it can be um, space related, um, but you've got an unlimited well, budget to uh, cover a particular well, subject. If, if I had an unlimited budget, I would I would spend an unlimited amount of money buying the options to this great book called chasing the moon and turn it into a, <laughs> into a drama. That's what I would do. How about you? Right. Great answer. Great answer. I walked straight into that one, didn't I? <laughs> well, I, I do think that there's a lot of, there's a, there are a lot of small, interesting stories. Um, for instance, there probably could be a drama just set in, Africa about what ha how the they saw the American space program. Uh, when we were talking about Ed Dwight, I find it fascinating that you could have a drama about what it was like when NASA had tracking stations in Nigeria and Zanzibar during the Mercury program, and then revolutions broke out in those countries, 
and the tracking stations were in danger of getting uh, burned down. And so what ha- what they they were the USIA and the CIA were giving out photographs of the uh, the black astronaut candidate Ed Dwight and telling them, no, 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 don't. You- you see there's a black guy up there <laughs> thank you alan for for that La- last question is if you could have a beer a coffee with three people from the cold war period living or dead who would you gr- have in that group i i can answer i can answer that one pretty easily even from the book the two people i would love to talk to are james webb the head of NASA and Julian Shear, the head of NASA Public Relations. Both of those men, I would love to talk to, and that I did as much and as what, I could in the book to bring them alive. But there, you know, like that was it, that was an impossibility. And what questions would you ask them? Oh my goodness! I mean, it's, a lot of it is like what exactly was going through their mind uh, when they were making certain decisions. Um, how serious did they think that this was going to come off? What were their political uh, concerns? Uh, no, there's a, there's a lot that those two figures to me are fascinating, and I've, I I I have more than enough questions. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. And Robert, who would your three be? I think Nikita Khrushchev would be one, although I came close by interviewing his son. But I, I think even though it would probably be a one-way conversation, because I don't think he was a good listener, um, I, it would it'd be very interesting to talk to Nikita Khrushchev, particularly about the idea of doing a joint lunar mission with the uh, with the uh, United States. So that would be one. Um, Verna von Braun. I would, you know, if I would had been able to interview Vertimont Braun for the movie, I think that would have been an incredible. I'd love to, love to uh, probe into his uh, psyche and experiences. He's one of the most fascinating people of the 20th century to me. One of the most complex characters, going from being a mm. colonel in Hitler's SS to the most celebrated scientist of his day. And, really being this the, the pivotal figure and putting a man on the moon. Um, so that would, that would be two, um, three, uh, John F. Kennedy. I would, I would go, I'd love to go have a drink with John F. Kennedy. That would be great too. I could stay up all night talking to him. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a, that's a very good trio. Yeah. So, uh, thank, thank you for that. So the, the book is called chasing the moon. Um, it's available now, I believe. Yes, it is. Uh, and the movie is the same title, Chasing the Moon, which I think has been sold to a number of TV networks around the world. So it should be available uh, in July in various locations. It'll be on BBC. Yes, BBC4 in July. I don't have the exact date, but it'll be Fantastic. on BBC4 in July, over three nights. Fantastic. That's uh, un- unmissable as this podcast will be as well. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. So, do you want some more? There's loads more content, including videos, audio, and links to the book and documentary in the show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 72. Don't forget, you can support us and get a Cold War Conversations coaster at Patreon dot com slash cold war pod that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com 
slash Cold War Pod. If you like what you're hearing in the podcast, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or where you found this podcast. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you didn't like the podcast, please don't bother. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like yourselves, carry on the Cold War conversation. Just search for us on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, at Cold War Pod, and Instagram, at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information